Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. An inconvenient ruling for the West? The International Court of Justice, or ICJ, which is the UN's highest court, has delivered an interim ruling last week on South Africa's case against Israel's offensive in Gaza. With an overwhelming majority, the court's 17-judge panel voted in favor of six emergency measures, ordering Israel to do everything in its power to prevent genocide in Gaza, among others. South Africa has called the ruling a victory for international law, while Israel called the ruling not only false but also outrageous. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reaffirmed U.S. support for Israel but pointed out that the court did not support South Africa's request for an immediate ceasefire. In the global battle for hearts and minds on this issue, is the U.S.-led West framing the ruling to suit the interests and narrative? A self-claimed champion of so-called rules-based international order, why does the West seem not concerned about accusations of genocide against Palestinians, which the U.N. court deems plausible? I'm pleased to be joined from Beijing by Aina Tangen, senior fellow of Taiha Institute from New York City by David Monda, professor political science department at the City University of New York and from Hong Kong by Edward Lehman, co-founder of Lehman, Lee and Xu Law Firm. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So um, the ICJ issued six emergency measures that uh, the state of Israel shall adopt and these include, among others, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts of genocide, to ensure with immediate effect its military does not commit any genocide genocidal acts, three, prevent and punish the direct and public incitement to commit genocide against Gazans, four, enable provision of urgently needed basic services and humanitarian assistance in Gaza Strip, five, prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence related to allegations of genocide, and six, submit a report to the court on all measures taken within one month. Let me go to Ina. Um, as I said, the United States seem not to have uh, taken heed of these emergency measures emergency. that are supposed to be taken by Israel. Um, it only point to the fact that the ruling did not concede to the request by South Africa for an immediate ceasefire. Has the U.S. overlooked these emergency measures? Uh, the U.S. Uh, soft power is uh, going to be irreparably uh, damaged by this. Uh, the global south, the rest of the world, is looking on. They're horrified. Uh, and they've written the U.S. off as basically only uh, wedded to their own self-interest. I mean, you can see that very clearly in the U.N. votes that have been there have literally been the world versus two, with even close allies abstaining because they can't go along with this. So the U.S. has dug itself into a corner and it's having domestic uh, repercussions for Biden. Uh, this is a hot issue for young people, obviously Muslims, and it threatens his uh, viability in the campaign to, that's coming. Professor Monda, why is the U.S. and some mainstream international media uh, seeming to highlight the fact that the ruling does not call for an immediate ceasefire while ignoring the others? Correct me if my observation is wrong. Yes, I think uh, the U.S. is very much uh, emphasizing that uh, uh, the ruling did not, uh, the preliminary ruling did not call for an immediate ceasefire 
because the U.S. Uh, has traditionally, historically, whether in Democratic or Republican administrations, tended to side very closely with Israel. So part of the strategy here is to ensure that Israel does not lose space uh, in light of this, uh, of this ruling. And part of the spin in terms of this ruling is to show that um, Israel, number one, has not been asked to stop uh, to, to, to uh, commit to a ceasefire, but two, that Israel has also not been asked to stop its uh, military offensive in Gaza. I might also add that uh, the flip side to this whole situation is that um, the, the dignity and humanity of the Palestinians has also been respected in terms of the ruling of the court, specifically, as you'd mentioned earlier, that uh, the Israelis have been asked by the ICJ, the International Criminal, the International Court of Justice, to ensure that um, the Palestinians are protected and that acts of genocide and statements of genocide are not perpetuated. So I think for the Palestinians, their dignity has also been upheld. And I think this is part of the element that the U.S. statement missed. But as was said earlier, this is one of the very fundamental elements in terms of soft power diplomacy of the U.S. that, uh, that the Americans are missing at this point. Uh, chairperson of the court, U.S. Judge Joan Donahue, said it is plausible, and I'm interpreting here, uh, basically she, the ruling says, or the panel of judges says, it is plausible that Israel has committed genocide. Um, of course, it did not come to the conclusion that Israel has done so, but it is plausible and it may take years to deliberate on that point. Edward, uh, what does that mean that Israel, it is plausible that Israel may have committed genocide? And how serious is that matter? Is it a denial that it cannot be established at this moment? What are the implications? Well, I mean, Joan Donahoe is, uh, she's an American and she worked at the State Department. I mean, she worked in Covington and Burling. She's, uh, you know, um, what I think the, and she's the head of the 17 group panel. There's 15 judges and then there's another couple of judges that each of the countries select that they added on. I, I mean, I think it's good news that there, it wasn't thrown out. So at one point, Israel was what the first reaction when this was filed on December 29th, 2023 was that Israel would thought it was preposterous and it should be thrown out. Um, with Joan Donahue, uh, you know, citing that, that there is some basis or there's some plausibility uh, that, you know, Israel has signed the uh, the genocide convention, which said that they will adhere to not uh, in involving and in being involved in genocide. And uh, remember, it is, like I said, it was filed on the 29th. They, they didn't, they had an oral hearing on the 11th and 12th of January. And here we are already with a, with a ruling that came out on the 26th. So I think, you know, like everything, the wheels of justice, unfortunately, for those in the in the conflict area, um, you know, move slowly. And uh, this, by, by way of contrast, I mean, the Gambia brought an action against Myanmar uh, with regards to the Rigingi uh, people. And that was in 2019. And that still has not been solved. So like you said, it's going to take some time. There also needs to be evidence, and there really hasn't been uh, for both sides. Uh, uh, there has to be a, a, an exchange of evidence, and there has to be a process that this goes through. So the headlines want to say something. Um, the, the only thing I can take away from this is, one, it was not thrown out. Two, that they're saying it is plausible, so that there, there will be some accountability, or hopefully will be accountability 
as to what's happening. And third, that they put in some guardrails. The, the problem with the guardrails and the six uh, points that you've identified is that uh, the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, really doesn't have have teeth to be able to put that in. That's going to have to come from the states themselves. Mm. Uh, Ina, normally, if the United uh, the United States has been champion championing human rights, has been championing rules based international order, it actually also uh, put its own judges to the panel of the International Court of Justice. But uh, when it comes to such a ruling, it seems that the United States is not concerned that there may be acts of genocide that has been committed by the state of Israel. Uh, it chooses not to say anything about the fact that the ruling says it is plausible that Israel may have done so. What do you make of the U.S. attitude and Western governments in general? I mean, we're talking about the British government calling the suit when it was brought up, calling it nonsense. Well, remember, the international... Uh this body is political to a large degree and what you had was a compromise uh donahue wanted to usher in some the least offensive way of dealing with this from the u.s point of view uh which is to come to the things well maybe something happened but, but we need more evidence I, I disagree uh with ed on the terms of what's happening there when you have 26,000 people uh, dead and 98% uh, of them are non-combatants. Uh, they're women, children, men who are not involved in this. Uh, it, that is, in essence, genocide. And the remarks that have been made by senior officials in the Israeli government uh, clearly state that. Uh, the U.S. is concerned about this. Um, you know, never mistake uh, the actions of a few uh, elites uh, for the feeling of the country, young people across the United States, Muslims, people within the Justice Department, I mean, within the State Department who have resigned because of this, uh, make it very clear, just like uh, Israel is not, uh, uh, the, the state of Israel is not uh, in conjunction with uh, a lot of Jews around the world and within Israel itself on this issue. So, you know, be very, we have to be very careful about generalizing it, but very clearly, this is a cynical ploy uh, by the U.S. to, in essence, paper over and put off uh, what is obviously a genocide in which uh, they are now isolated in. And uh, unfortunately, they, they, you know, the elites, uh, Biden doesn't seem to care. He's more concerned about the domestic fallout of what's happening. Professor Monda, how do you look at the weight of this ruling and its, uh, significant, its implications on the situation on the ground and on the global, the growing global call for more restraint, for, for protecting the rights of the Palestinian people? I think in terms of uh, soft power, um, it, it really hurts and dents the image of Israel as a democracy, which is, again is very much contested in terms of, uh, you know, the occupation of, uh, you know, Palestinian areas and also U.S. soft power. Uh, but uh, I think as had been said earlier, the, the ICJ has... Uh, has no enforcement capacity. It relies on the goodwill of the state parties uh, that are, uh, you know, signatories to, you know, to international conventions. I think the second part of that also is that uh, we have to realize on the other side of, of Israel is Hamas, and Hamas is not uh, is is not a signatory to these international agreements. It's not a state. So that also really complicates the whole situation in terms of how do you go forward in terms of seeking a resolution um, in terms of this particular conflict. But I must say 
that um, given this resolution of the, given this uh, judgment of the, this preliminary judgment of the um, of the ICJ, uh, exactly to what you had uh, spoken to earlier, who establishes this rules-based international order? We know major powers tend to frame rules of the international order and abide by them when they are favorable to major powers, but ignore them when they're not. And I think in this context, we see the U.S. Uh, not being very enthusiastic of enforcing the, the, the rules of the international uh, in, in rules of international order when they go against Israel. So I think going forward, it's really going to be interesting, um, particularly in the event that this year's an election year in the U.S. and a lot of the the um, Islamic populations, constituencies of the Democratic Party, particularly in swing states like Michigan, are really upset with Joe Biden and the way they've treated um, the Palestinians in the Middle East. So there's also a domestic constituency and element of domestic politics that will that I think will play forward uh, this year. Okay. But I think by and yeah. large, it's really more of soft power uh, that, that, that that's uh, highlighted at this point, but yeah. there's no enforcement okay. for the ICJ. Okay, we have to leave it there. We have to go. Many thanks to my guest, Ina Tangan, Senior Fellow at Tiger Institute, David Monda, Professor of Political Science at City University, University of New York, and uh, Edward Lehman, co-founder of the Lehman Lienshu Law Firm. When we come back, tens of thousands of Argentinians went on strike to express their anger at their new president, Javier Mille's free market revolution. Why are Mille's economic measures controversial? Stay tuned. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Antidote or poison. Within weeks after Argentina's President Javier Mille took office, waves of protests have erupted in Buenos Aires and other cities. Called by the country's largest labor union, General Confederation of Labor, Argentinians protested against Mille's economic austerity measures known as shock therapy, which have led to a sharp devaluation of the currency peso, accelerated inflation and cost of living crisis. Over the past 12 months, Argentina's inflation has reached over 200%, the highest in the world, of course, is not all the work of the new president, which only came into power at the end of last year, and yet the situation has gotten much worse. Mille remains, however, defiant, saying that he wouldn't waver from his campaign promise to shake up the so-called state-controlled economy. Why is he encountering so much opposition so soon after elections? Is he bringing more problems to solutions?
I'm very curious about these answers and try to understand the situation and thus pleased to be joined from Beijing by Argentine economist Gisela Sernandas and from Shanghai by Niu Haibing, director of the Institute for Foreign Policy Studies at Shanghai Institutes for International Studies. The warmest welcome to both of you. So, um, President Millet vowed to make steep government spending cuts and get rid of the central bank in uh, <coughs> last November's presidential runoff. However, he had 55.8%, more than his competitors. So, uh, Gisela, let me go to you. So, the voters, the people uh, knew what he was going to bring about to the economy, what kind of measures, what kind of drastic measures he was going to bring about to the economy. But are they somehow surprised at, at exactly how dramatic these measures are? So, well, the first point to, to single out is that I think that when people voted for Millet in November elections, most of them were voting because they wanted a change. As you mentioned, the inflation was pretty high, it was 160% by November 2023. So we're desperately voting for a change in the country. Some of them, of course, they voted for the liberal policies, but most of them, they were uh, a bit seduced by a fake speech saying that the liberal policies will indeed improve the quality of life that they are living. And what they witnessed in the first couple of days and even weeks of the new government is that the liberal policies are affecting the quality of life of the people. So that's the reason why most of them now are regretting on this, uh, this new government. Yeah, well, this is very interesting. Let me continue with you a little bit. I mean. Um, so they voted for him, thinking that he may bring positive changes, but the moment he's <clears> in power, they're surprised. Now they're regretting that they voted for him. Yes. Um, this Let me give you an example. One of the key points of the Millet's speech during the campaign was that he wanted to attack the political caste in the country. It means revoking all the laws and all the privileges of the upper political classes and the upper sectors of society. But in the first two weeks after his uh, his government started, he uh, decreed a decree of urgency and need, revoking more than 300 laws of the country. In most of the laws, they were protecting the consumers, they were protecting the families. All the laws that he revoked by this decree of urgency I need were affecting the quality of life of the workers and not affecting at all to any of the caste that he said he will go against to. Mm -hmm. And this is a clear example of why so many people felt cheated, saying, well, you say that we'll, you will, um, with your liberal policies, help the workers, and actually it's the opposite. Mr. New, what is your understanding of what has been going on? Because a lot of the people, the netizens here in China are saying, well, it's a lot of trouble. It seems there are a lot of trouble. A lot of people are angry, but they voted for this president. Nobody imposed the presidency upon them. <clears throat> yes, uh, because um, President uh, Ilay was elected from a very polarized society. Uh, there are people strongly support him, and there are others strongly oppose him. So th this is a basic uh, uh, environment for understanding how uh, the situations mm -hmm. in Buenos Aires. But also, I think uh, things uh, get worse uh, before getting better. So th this kind of uh, deregulation, economic reforms, uh, will give a lot of uh, uh, challenges to the ordinary, especially the labor's uh, life. Okay, so two points you're making. First, the polarization. Second, that the situation will get better uh, after it gets worse. Uh, Gisela, what is your take? I mean, are the people protesting against Miele, the people who voted for him, 
or the ones who never voted for him, but the ones who are suffering the, the consequence? Uh, both the people who didn't vote for him and people who also voted for him are protesting against these measures. My understanding is that the shock therapy that Millet wants to apply in Argentina, instead of solving the structural problems that the country has and that led to the high inflation, high instability and the problems of the society, he's adding more fuel to the oil which means that all the problems of inflation will be accelerated. The clear proof is that in the first month of his government, the inflation was 25% month on month, finishing the year with Argentina being the country with the most inflation in the world. Um, the devaluation of the country was one of the currency of the country was 120% only in one day. So these measures are further deepening the complications of the industry and the own development of the country is not gonna bring any solution in the long term. Well, he was quite uh, dramatic when uh, he was campaigning. For instance, he was talking about getting rid of the central bank and so on and so forth. Um, although he may have introduced measures that not in keeping with his campaign promise, but uh, is not totally um, changed his uh, his his doctrine. For instance, he's he has always talked about a fundamentally free liberal economy. Um, so, do you think he has? deliberately misled the voters or it's just when he comes into office the reality gets real for him that he has to fit into the system and find a compromise well, I think that in his campaign, he always talk about these liberal policies. That's true. But in his campaign, he also talk about going against the political caste and the upper sectors of the society that were oppressing the freedom and the, oppressing the growth of, the, of the, 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 the wellness of the workers. What he showed with his uh, first measures was that he was giving all the privilege to the political caste and not to the workers. So that's a concrete lie about the political campaign. And the second point is that many people also thought that the liberal policies will be good for the society because they truly believed what they said. And now they are witnessing in the first couple of weeks of the government that these measures are actually worse. Yeah, well, uh, Mr. Neil, what is your observation from here? What do you think went wrong? What do you think went wrong? I mean, people wanted change, okay? A lot of people very polarized, very angry. They wanted to want to change and they voted for this um, very rabble-rousing uh, candidate and, and yet they are totally surprised now. Yes, I think there is no easy answer to this uh, difficult and complex situation. So um, it, it's understandable that the central bank are still there, um, but uh, there are some uh, real uh, deregulation and pro-market uh, measures has been adopted uh, to reflect the real uh, inflation and uh, uh, the currency, uh, this kind of things to make the, um, uh, and I think the, the aim of the government is try to make the market to be effective. This has been... Uh, so basically it's carrying uh, out an experiment, yes. right? It's carrying out an experiment yes. on the society, on the economy and a drastic one. I think uh, the, the current moment is quite critical uh, why the laborers are so active because uh, Mark, uh, the, the president's uh, decree uh, was debating in the Congress and uh, to be discussed by the uh, court system. So they have to show uh, their willingness to keep to maintain the labor rights. So that, that's why the struggles are quite uh, uh, possible now, nowadays. Hmm. Gisela, uh, what do you think is 
uh, actually the problem. I mean, people have the right to feel angry, to feel frustrated. That's why they voted for someone. They were sick and tired, from my reading, sick and tired of the old system, of uh, the old ways of governing. They wanted to give him a try, and yet all of a sudden they're stunned by what's happening. So what went wrong? What went wrong? Is there another way to fix this? Listen, this is not an experiment in Argentina. It's already happened. We have experienced the shock therapy during the 70s in Argentina and in Latin America. When the U.S. pushed the Condor Plan in Latin America to overthrow the leftist and progressive governments, they also used this occasion to introduce by the force uh, extreme liberal policies in our economies. So Argentina really experienced these kinds of policies and it was very harmful for the people. The industry, got, the, the country got the, the industrialized, the inflation was higher, the poverty so was higher. So let me ask you, um, yeah, so, since, since, since so, Argentina experience, experienced this before, how come there were no lessons being, le being uh, learned? There were no guardrails in terms of legislation or to prevent this from happening again? Well, that's a very important question, and I would like to know a good answer, because otherwise people will not be voting for an extreme liberal government. We can understand that people were uh, tired, that they needed a change in the country because of the inflation and the instability that get people into and out of poverty all the time. But I think that if we have a deeper study of the history, we should not vote for this uh, liberal candidate. So I would like to know a clearer answer to prevent mm. any country to yeah. fall into this liberal, uh, liberal attempt. Yeah. Do you think things will get better after it get worse, Gisela? I don't think the things could get better with this government because they are using the inflation and the devaluation of the currency as a mechanism to transfer wealth from uh, the workers and the middle sectors of the society to uh, their their political class. And actually, they are all financial speculators, so they need the inflation so and they need the devaluation to increase their wealth. So you think it's a, a moral issue? It's a it's an issue about lying to the people instead of an issue of competence. Yes. Is, is they are very competent in what they are doing, which is transferring wealth from okay. the working class to yeah. the financial sector. I see. Mr. Neil, what I is your... I disagree with that. Yeah. They are very competent in that. Okay. Okay. Uh, Mr. Neil, what is your judgment? Do you think it's a matter of confidence? Is a matter of uh, mismatch of theory and reality? Or is it a matter of intention trying to steal the state? I think it's a matter of patience to give a little more time for the new administration to, to improve. Uh, the situation. So the IMF is expecting the new government can achieve some short achievements uh, so that the international investors have confidence to invest in the country. But there are still a lot of uncertainties. Okay. Well, we'll certainly be keeping a close watch on the situation. Many thanks for my guest, Gisela Sernadas, joining us from Shanghai, who is an Argentine economist, and Mr. Neil Haibing, also joining us from Shanghai, director of the Institute for Foreign Policy Studies at the Shanghai Institute for International Studies. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Li Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Li Xin in Beijing. You've got the point. <laughs>